Welcome to Kishwaukee Bible Church. No, to God's Word. Uh, Ron's going to be preaching from uh, the book of Job. You can turn to Job chapter 38. He's going to be preaching on this section, Job 38 through to verse 5 in chapter 40. Let me read this. This is God's word. It says, Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from its womb? When I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, Thus far shall you come and no farther, and here shall your proud waves be stayed. Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place, that it might take hold of the skirts of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it. It is changed like clay under the seal, and its features stand out like a garment. From the wicked their light is withheld, and their uplifted arm is broken. Have you entered into the springs of the sea, or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have, your, have the gates of death been revealed to you, or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare if you know all this. Where is the way to the dwelling of light? And where is the place of darkness? That you may take it to its territory and that you may discern the paths to its home. You know, for you were born then and the number of your days is great. Have you entered the storehouses of the snow? Or have you seen the storehouses of the hail, which I have reserved for the time of trouble, for the day of battle and war? What is the way to the place where the light is distributed? Or where is the east wind, where the east wind is scattered upon the earth? Who has cleft a channel for the torrents of rain, and a way for the thunderbolt? To bring rain on a land where no man is, on the desert in which there is no man. To satisfy the waste and desolate land. And to make the ground sprout with grass. Has the rain a father? Or who has begotten the drops of dew? From whose womb did the ice come forth? And who has given birth to the frost of heaven? The waters become hard like stone. And the face of the deep is frozen. Can you bind the chains of the, the, the Pleiades or, 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 or loose the cords of Orion? Can you lead forth the Mazaroth 
in their season? Or, or can you guide the bear with its children? Do you know the ordinances of the heavens? Can you establish their rule on the earth? Can you lift up your voice to the clouds that a, a flood of waters may cover you? Can you send forth lightnings that, that they may go and say to you, here we are. Who has put wisdom in the inward parts or given understanding to the mind? Who can number the clouds by wisdom? Or who can tilt the water skins of the heavens when the dust runs into a mass and the clods stick fast together? Can you hunt the prey for the lion or satisfy the appetite of the young lions when they, they crouch in their dens or lie in wait in their thicket? Who provides for the raven its prey when its young ones cry to God for help and wander about for lack of food? Do you know when the, the mountain goats give birth? Do you observe the calving of the doves? Can you number the, the months that they fulfill? And, and do you know the time when they give birth? When they crouch, bring forth their offspring and are delivered of their young? Their young ones become strong. They grow up in the open. They go out and do not return to them. Who has let the wild donkey go free? Who has loosed the bonds of the swift donkey? To whom I have given the, the arid plain for his home and, and the salt land for his dwelling place. He scorns the tumult of the city. He, he hears not the shouts of the driver. He ranges the mountains as his pasture, and he searches after every green thing. Is the wild ox willing to serve you? Will he spend the night at your manger? Can you bind him in the furrow with ropes, or, or will he harrow the valleys after you? Will you depend on him because his strength is great? And, and will you leave to him your labor? Do you have faith in him that he will return your grain and gather it to your threshing floor? The wings of the ostrich wave proudly, but are they the pinions and plumage of love? For she leaves her eggs to the earth and lets them be warmed, warmed on the ground, forgetting that a foot may crush them and that the wild beast may trample them. She, she deals cruelly with her young, as if they were not hers, though her labor be in vain. Yet she has no fear, because God has made her forget wisdom and given her no share in understanding. When she rouses herself to flee, she laughs at the horse and his rider. Do you give the horse his might? Do you clothe his neck with his mane? Do you make him leap like the locust? His majestic snorting is terrifying. His, he paws in the valley and exults in his strength. He goes out to meet the weapons. He laughs at fear and is not dismayed. He, he does not turn back from the sword. Upon him rattle the quiver the flashing spear and the javelin. With fierceness and rage, he swallows the ground. He cannot stand still at the sound of the trumpet. When the trumpet sounds, he says, Aha! He smells the battle from afar. The thunder of the captains and the, the shouting. Is it by your understanding that the hawk soars, spreads his wings toward the south? 
Is it at your command that, that the eagle mounts up and makes his nest on high? On the rock he, he dwells and makes his home on the rocky crag and stronghold. From there he spies out the prey. He, 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 his eyes behold it from afar. His young ones suck up blood, and, and where the, the slain are, there is he. And the Lord said to Job, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. And then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my head on my mouth. I have spoken once, and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Jesse. Let's, let's pray with that. Father, we, we learn from the book of Job that experience is not king. Your word is king. And thank you that in this section we get to hear directly from you and know that there's no error in your words, that we could look at your words, be comforted, be challenged, have our, have our mind expanded from its limited nature. I just pray that this morning that we would bow the knee to your word because your spirit speaks through your word to change our lives, to reset our minds and make them more like Christ. And I just pray that that would happen through the preaching this morning. Amen. There's one thing in our marriage that Jen is absolutely forbidden to do. This is something that if she talked about or showed someone, it would ruin my manhood. You guys would lose all respect for me. And and that showing or talking about the poems that I wrote her back early on in our relationship, I've gone back. When I wrote these things, they were the best thing ever. The rhyme scheme was beautiful, and I thought, it just, man, I'm, this woman's going to marry me because of these poems. And if I go back and read these poems, I cringe. They're so painful to read. And so, Jen, you're still forbidden to share those. And Thankfully, we find a much more beautiful poetry in this genre of writing that we find in our Bibles called Hebrew Wisdom and Poetry Literature. Many of you guys know these as the Psalms and Proverbs, and in these books, the author uses the medium of poetry to get across his point. If you're like me, poetry kind of drives you nuts. As a black and white type of person, I find poetry confusing and quite annoying at times. I just get to the point, right? Stop skirting around it and using all these fancy words. Just tell me what I need to know. And this genre is difficult to read because we live in a point A, B, C kind of culture. Epistles we find much easier to read and preach on because they give instructions and encouragements that are clearly stated. Poetry makes us have to work a little harder to see why the pen was picked up in the first place and what the Holy Spirit intends for us to learn. And it doesn't help either that most poetic books are longer and harder to read all in one sitting like we should to get the big picture. And that's why books like Job are easy to avoid, especially for me. Chapters 1, 2, and 42 are easy because the story is pretty easy to follow if you were to read just chapters 1, 2, and 42. But Job was only bookended with narrative, but the entire middle is poetic. And that poetry was meant to awaken our senses and imagination with just beautiful imagery. And what we have to see is that the author had intention to teach us more through those middle chapters than we usually get out of them. And the story itself exists for the sole purpose of God's people 
whether it was thousands of years ago or today, being taught the vital truths that they may not have known without it. Just giving that original audience just straight theology of this is who God is, it wouldn't have been enough. It wouldn't have been sufficient. The audience needed to be slowly and carefully stripped of this false theology that they had come to adopt. And whether or not we want to admit it, we are all guilty of the same belief that has slipped into our worldview because of where we live and what we think we experience. We even support this belief with biblical texts, thinking that this is always the way the world works. And this belief, the way, this belief shapes the way we act and how we think God operates. It shaped the way that Israel thought God operated too, and here it is. Do good, be blessed. Do bad, be punished. We're going to call it the system. By living in the delusion of this system, we convince ourselves on a daily basis that if we do good to God and others, we will have a mostly prosperous life. We fear that when we sin or do something wrong, punishment and misfortune is bound to come our way. And as I describe this, it sounds a lot more like karma than Christianity. Maybe you're sitting there and thinking, no, 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 no. I don't operate in the system, not me. Well, what happens when you look around and you see the homeless, the single parents, the poor, the outcasts, those who have lost everything, the perpetually, the perpetually sick, do you not at least a little bit in your heart think that they must have done something to become the way that they are, be in the situation that they're in? They must have done something to deserve that outcome. Or maybe in your own personal life, when you face some sort of devastation, whether health-related, death-related, losing a job, crashing your car, maybe someone stealing all your money or possessions, don't you ask God, why? Why me, God? What did I do to deserve this? That's the system. We're products of the system more than we realize. We assume to know the mind of God and how he operates. We put him into the box that makes the most sense to us and how we think the world works. Cause and effect. Reward and punishment. Well, in these chapters, God is going to destroy the argument for the system as he speaks from his righteous anger to Job. And as we read Job, we must keep in mind what was revealed to the original audience and to us in chapters 1 and 2 about Satan's conversation with God was not revealed to Job and his friends. The story starts for them with the calamity that came upon Job, and their top priority is finding out why. They assumed it was from the Lord, as we know it was, but they don't know why. However, we can't ignore that there is an original audience of this book, Israel, who needed to be taught these vital truths that was never really fully revealed to Job or his friends. It was revealed to them, and it's revealed to us. So let's start with like a little recap, because it's hard to jump into the end of a book without understanding the story up until that point. So chapters 1 and 2, Job's introduces this God-fearing man with perfect integrity. He's called the greatest man among all the people of the East. He had many possessions and a wonderful family. Job is so good that God brags about him to Satan. But Satan proceeds to accuse Job because he says he's only the way he is because you've given him so much. Well, God's hand is extended against Job through Satan to take away all that he has except his health. God wants to prove Satan wrong. Well, Satan carries out this plan, and everything that Job has is taken away in a matter of hours. Yet, to God's point, Job still praises God. He didn't sin or blame God for anything, the text says. But then on another day, God once again shows off his servant Job to Satan. You devastated him without just cause, and he still has perfect integrity. Stretch out your hand, Satan tells him. 
and take away his health, and surely he's going to curse you. Well, once again, God gives Satan power to carry this out, and he did. And as Job sat there infected with boils from head to toe, sitting in ashes, even his wife became an accuser with Satan and wanted him to curse God. But verse 10 tells us, you speak as a foolish woman speaks. Should we accept only good from God and not adversity? Throughout all this, Job did not sin in what he said. Well done, Job. But then Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, the three friends, heard about what happened to him, to their friend, but not what happened in heaven, and they came to sympathize with him and comfort him. They sat with him for seven full days without speaking. I don't think many of us have ever experienced that kind of dedication and friendship. Maybe from family sometimes, but it sure is rare among friends. They stopped working and caring for their families just to be there for Job. And as as admirable as their actions were, we cannot judge their friendship on actions alone. The author is about to spend the next 23 chapters showing why the error of their words outweighed the love of their actions. And even as they were sitting there silent without talking for seven days, I think that seven days just gave them enough time to conspire all the theories and judgments they had against Job that they were about to pronounce. And we're not above Job's friends either. We have all sat with someone either just quietly listening or observing and thought of all the judgmental things that we wanted to say if we could. They were waiting for Job to open his mouth so that they could begin their explanation of why Job is a victim of the system for he must have done something wrong. Their good intentions did not result in good counsel or comfort. Miserable comforters you are, Job says. And we also must remember the proverb that says, he who loves to argue loves sin. These friends love sin. They're arguing that Job must have sinned. And that's really what the next 28 chapters are about, is the three friends wearing down Job, argument after argument, some eloquent and some brutal, about why Job must have done something to deserve this. And then Job responds to each argument. They spoke from their experience, which we see in this case was not a good thing because they were not right. But sadly, it begins to work on Job. His speeches move from saying things like, why was I even born? And God is wise and all-powerful. Who has opposed him and come out unharmed? To saying things like, I would plead my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. Let the Almighty answer me. Let my opponent compose his indictment. I would approach him like a prince. Job slowly moves from arguing the unsearchable wisdom of God to arguing the extent of his own goodness and why there is no reason why that God could give an answer to why this happened. The system has taken over Job's worldview. He's making his argument from the same error that his friends are, fitting God into a box of cause and effect, assuming what is seen is all that there is. Job and his friends have put God on trial. They have called themselves and some of creation to testify as witness against God. They have moved God from the judge's seat to the seat of the accused. The friends did this by falsely accusing Job and speaking as the judge, And Job has done this by thinking that his defense argument is pure and righteous. How could God ever respond? Yet in chapters 32 through 37, we see this new younger friend, Elihu, Elihu he's introduced and he speaks his mind and shows that age does not always mean wisdom. He's angry at Job for vindicating himself instead of God. And the argument that he makes is different from the rest. His focus is on the pure justice of God. And the power of God. No one could approach him in court. 
No one could declare God guilty. Some speculate that this argument is the only argument that had error. Some speculate that his argument still has error, but the scriptures don't tell us directly. Elihu is never rebuked or confronted by Job, the friends, or God. He's kind of an enigma. We don't know what to do with him, but he seems right. It seems like he's preparing the way for God to speak. And the main difference with his argument that he makes is the friends are saying, Job, you're, su- you're suffering because of your sin. But Elihu is different. He's saying, Job, you're sinning because of your suffering. As a result of your suffering, which I'm not going to accuse you for sinning, but I'm going to say that for sinning before the suffering, but I'm saying now that you're suffering, you are sinning. That's the argument he's making. But we're going to leave that there. So now we approach our text. God's going to take back the courtroom here. So far he's waited patiently, but now he's going to put Job in his place. He's going to give Job the answer that he thought he wanted, and we get to listen in through beautiful poetry. So I'm going to read chapters 38, 1 through 3. I'm not going to read the whole middle section, everything that Jesse read, but I'm just going to read 38, 1 through 3 to get us started here. Then the Lord answered Job from the whirlwind. He said, Who is this who obscures my counsel with ignorant words? Get ready to answer me like a man. When I question you, you will inform me. Before God even opens his mouth, this whirlwind is speaking for him. The powerful anger that he has against these arguments. Arguments that the friends are making, but arguments that Job is making too. I remember when we were in Papua New Guinea years ago, I was sharing the story of the flood, the story of Noah with an unreached village, middle of nowhere, middle of the jungle. And, and as I began the part talking about the rains coming, literally this massive storm blew in. Huge. Rain sort of pouring down. You should have seen the look on these people's faces as the word of God was validated for them with the storm, and they truly thought judgment was coming upon them if they did not repent. I imagine these friends, as this whirlwind blows in, they must have felt the same way. Here they are, speaking for God, putting words in God's mouth, and now God's judgment is coming close to them. And notice, too, that the text says, God answered Job. Why not the friends? Well, we'll see how God deals with the friends later in the book, but right now God is concerned with Job. There's almost a sense that Job is the only one worthy for God to speak to and correct because of his intense suffering and need for comfort, but also because he has spoken rightly, mostly. The others just deserve judgment. And then in verses 2 through 3, God's first indictment is spoken. You have spoken wrongly for me. You have asked the wrong questions. Now man up and get ready for my questions. The whirlwind has now lifted Job from the place of the prosecutor to the place of the accused. And God is about to drill him with 53 questions to silence and rebuke him, and no one's going to stand up to accuse God of leading the witness. Back in chapters 29 through 31, we see Job brought God on a tour of his life to prove that God's being unjust, and now God is going to bring a Job on a tour of Genesis 1 as creation is going to take their stand as witness one by one to testify to God's unsearchable knowledge and power. So the field trip is going to begin in verse 4. As Job is suddenly surrounded by darkness, as God recounts how and when he established the earth's foundations, there was God's spirit hovering over the earth's waters, measuring its circumference down to the last millimeter, determining its mass, the materials of its core, while the angels watched in awe and sang for joy. Do you see yourself here, Job? No, you weren't here. It was me. 
In verses 8 through 11, Job then finds himself at the edge of a vast and powerful ocean before dawn, with waves crashing below his feet when God asks, Look down, Job. What makes the waves stop here and not obliterate you? Look out, Job. You can't even see the boundaries of these waters. Now look up. Did you design the clothing of clouds and darkness that covers this great expanse? No, Job. I've done that, not you. Now make the sun come up, Job. Oh, that's right, you can't. God reminds Job in verses 12 through 15. I can do that because I'm not wicked like men who themselves cannot even stand in the light. Only I could reveal the shapes and contours of this beautiful earth by commanding the light to come up. Still don't understand, Job? I'll show you true darkness. As God takes Job to the depths of the sea where black does not describe how deathly dark it is. God asked Job if he could see the gates of deep darkness around him and could comprehend where they even are, but Job's Job's eyes are useless without light, and he remains silenced. Need some relief from this darkness, Job? Follow me to the home of light. On this road, I separate light and darkness so that darkness stays where it belongs. Can you do that? You must be able to, Job. You were already born when I created light since you're eternal like me. How about the home of snow, hail, or wind? You can't enter them, let alone even know where they are. The witnesses against Job in verses 19 through 24 demand Job to stop his foolishness, but God will call more of creation into account. In verses 25 through 30, Job is taken to the desert where he watches the rain now pour down, yet he remains on solid ground. That's because of me, Job, not you, that the rain has somewhere to go other than above your head. Even in this desert place where you stand and no human being lives on, I still cause rain to fall so that life could grow from deadness. And Job, you may have considered your family large, but look at all these drops of rain and the ice crystals that they create at night. I'm their father. They all have their origin in me. Think about that, Job. The next witnesses are in the heavens. In verses 31 through 38, as Job is lifted to a place that no man can or ever will travel to, the stars. Change them if you can, so that the bears know when it's time to stop hibernating. Go ahead. Use the atmosphere and the tilt of the earth to change season from winter to spring, from dry season to rainy season. You couldn't even look down and count the clouds over your hometown, let alone the whole world, Job. And now look down. See those storm clouds and those lightning bolts waiting? They're waiting for your command. Send them out quickly, Job. See, you may think you're very wise, Job, but the wisdom that you do have... Where did it come from anyway? Who do you think wired your brain to understand some of these things? It sure wasn't you, Job. Keep that in mind. Here that God now makes a shift to show his wisdom and sovereignty through the animals. He says, are you tired yet, Job? Have you seen enough? That was only days one through four of creation. Come with me as I bring witnesses into account from days five and six. But be careful, Job. These witnesses have sharp teeth. Suddenly, Job is face-to-face in verse 39 with a lioness and her cubs, hungry and waiting for Job to feed them. Before they could take a bite of this failure of a hunter, thankfully, Job is lifted to a tree where he now sees this helpless baby raven awaiting food from its mother. Job wants to help, but he sees no food in sight, and even if he did, he has no idea how this baby could digest it. It's then that Job realizes God's point. 
that he is the one who provides wisdom and skill to the parents to get food for their families. And all the animals on earth would die if it were up to him. He's responsible for so little compared to God. Then chapter 39 begins with Job in the middle of a field in the forest. Speaking of families, Job, describe to me where and how mountain goats give birth, or how long this deer that you see over there is pregnant before the final day. You haven't the slightest clue. To you, Job, you keep your babies wrapped up and indoors. But what about these? They're born in this field and they're perfectly healthy. And they were independent long before you were. What's that, Job? You don't know the answers? Big surprise. But wait, there's more. In verses 5 through 12, Job is brought to a town where people have attempted to tame wild donkeys and oxen. They're wreaking havoc on the fields, the carts, the market, the homes, and the madness is only stopped when God takes Job from that place to the wilderness where these animals now live in peace. See this, Job? Would you like to tame one of these for a pet or to do your work for you? It wasn't working out too well for that town, was it? That's because it's impossible to tame what I have made untamed. They aren't, for, they aren't met for the wild, but you already knew that, didn't you, Job? Now let me show you an animal, Job, that I have deprived of wisdom. Maybe it will remind you of somebody, says God in verses 13 through 18. Job is now in the woodlands of Africa, watching an ostrich strut around in stupidity as he sits up in a tree. It tries to fly, but with the body of a lion and the floppy, crazy wings it has, it just looks ridiculous. As she runs around, she doesn't even realize that other animals are stepping on the eggs she just laid and crushing them. And those babies that do survive, she treats them with abuse, only, almost killing them at times. And even the speed that she has becomes a snare when being pursued by men on a horse because she stupidly runs in curved lines instead of straight. And I want you to notice here that there's not many questions in the ostrich part. He lets the stupidity of the ostrich ask the question, Who's that looking like to you right now, Job? Who's playing the ostrich? Job remains in the same place in verses 19 through 25 as God now draws his attention to the horse that just overtook the mocking ostrich. Were you the one, Job, who gave such spectacular and enduring muscles to this horse? Go ahead, stand in his path, and see what happens to you. You better hope he jumps over you, which he can, because he's not afraid of anything, and he won't even stop if I give you a sword. He will not back down, and neither will I. His strength is nothing compared to mine. You speak as if you know all these things already, so I'm going to show you another witness yet, Job. Job is lastly taken to a terrifying cliff in verses 26 through 30, where he watches the hawks and eagles soaring through the air. They soar at my command, Job, not yours. They know when to migrate because I tell them when to, Job. They could see a mouse from a mile high because I've given them the eyes to do so, Job, the kind of sight that you obviously do not have. And Job, these eagles, they know when something's dead and destroyed, ready to feast. And look, Job, they're now circling above you. Thankfully, before the eagles could feast on Job's flesh, God ends the Genesis 1 tour where creation has just condemned Job where he stands. Now he's once again surrounded by the no less frightening but strangely comforting whirlwind from which God is speaking. Verse 40, or chapter 40, verse 2 says, Will the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? Let him who argues with God give an answer. 
Those are the summarizing questions to what he just said. 53 questions about creation, and here they are summarized. His closing or middle indictment, so to say. Will the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? Let him who argues with God give an answer. The point of what God just said is that wisdom originated with him. So who could ever pretend they have enough wisdom to know God's mind and refute him? God is saying, Job, since you know so little about the environment of this planet, you are hardly qualified to pass judgment upon him who made the entire universe together with all the wonderful and baffling creatures. What would you say to this indictment? Let's take a look at what Job says. Verse 3 through 5, and I imagine he says this with his head down. I am so insignificant. How could I answer you? I place my hand over my mouth. I have spoken once, and I will not reply. Twice, but now I could add nothing. Job finally realizes how small he is. He finally realizes that he spoke way too soon. He realized that he's begun to believe in the system instead of entrusting himself to a faithful creator. And I think the original audience of this book had the same response as they read this too. We know that Israel has always struggled to recognize God, God's authority in their life, and now they're given a close-up view of exactly why God deserves this authority. They needed to slap their hands over their foolish mouths. What better way to humble them than with creation? They had only read about creation, or even heard, not read, from a a public reading from Genesis 1 and and 2, and that was just a brief view of creation. Here they're given the in-depth view that Job and they needed to put things in perspective. Remember in Genesis 1, 1, everything he created, what what did he declare it? He declared it good. And that's what he wants Job to see. Job, look at me. I am good. I am good, even in your suffering. If we can't know or understand everything described in chapters 38 and 39, then who could ever think they understand why good and bad things happen to good or bad people? Out of all the creatures in these two chapters, which one is man acting like the most through their arguments in Job? Certainly not the strong, the skilled, or the wise ones. It's the ostrich. Man is strutting around laughing while thinking he knows it all. God could deprive man of wisdom just like he deprived that ostrich of wisdom just as easily as he's bestowed it upon men. And this speaks to us as Americans who think we have an answer for everything. Too often I see Christians up in the north where we work just quoting verses to people and giving them empty comfort, thinking they could fix their problems or take away their pain. And in reality, they just need to be quiet. Maybe offer a prayer. Just listen. Sometimes it's just God's will for us to suffer. And there's no answers or reasons that we could see in that moment. We just have to let it sit. When we give an answer like these friends from our human experience, we ourselves challenge God's justice just like these foolish men. With God, the system just does not work. And we're not above Job's friends, nor Job. We have all used the wisdom given to us by God to doubt God, to question God, to assume we know the mind of God. We put words into his mouth, even as we try to comfort or condemn others. We've all been the ostrich. 
And whenever we're tempted to do these things, we should look outside and let creation silence our stupidity. Let the unknown cause us to awe the one who knows it all. I can't wait to go to the zoo during these two weeks. I'm just going to read more of the descriptions just to give myself a greater view of how creative God is and how small I really am. The zoo is an amazing thing for us, those of us who don't live in Africa, right? We just get to go there and see how amazing God is. No man has changed those animals. As we look forward to the final chapters of this book, we were to read on, we would see that in chapters 40 through 41, God's going to continue his speech. He's going to drive the nail even farther as he describes these creatures that no one could comprehend or overcome their strength besides him. These creatures could consume Job, yet they are nothing, God says, compared to what he could do to them, to him. And there's also imagery here that the Leviathan, we see in, throughout the whole scriptures that the Leviathan is the ancient serpent, that he's Satan the very one who appeared at the beginning of the story. Yet Satan, as as scary and powerful as he is, is still described as someone created by God and under the power and authority of God. We see that in chapter 1, that very truth, where Satan only does what he did in regards to Job with permission from God. He had to get permission from God. Either way, Job's mind in these chapters... 4041 is being opened, slightly open to the unseen spiritual world in regards to himself and what happened. And the dialogue ends with Job's humiliation and repentance. God's anger burns against the three friends because they have not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has. And God says, now you're required to offer a burnt offering through my servant Job. And don't even pray yourself. Job needs to pray for you. Job becomes this priest for the friends. And God accepts the mediation of Job and does not treat them as their sins deserve. And after Job did this for them, God restores all of Job's fortune, double what he had at first. And the book ends saying that he died old and full of age. Wow. What does that mean then? Does God operate in the system? No, not at all. God operates in grace. Job did not deserve for God to speak. But he did. Job was made through God's speech to trust in the goodness of God through his suffering. Job was only comforted once God spoke. The friends did not comfort him one bit. God did. All God did was give him a taste of the goodness of creation, showed him some cool animals, and that was enough for Job. And Job didn't deserve to have his prosperity restored, but God did it anyway. That's not the system. That's grace. What about Job's friends? God was angry at them. He could have destroyed them for the wrong that they had done, but he didn't. He made a way of reconciliation through Job. Job became Christ to them, one who God would accept an offering from because of his goodness Jesus was the greatest man in the East. If you don't see that connection at the beginning of the book, Job being the greatest man in the East, that's where our Savior came from. This is what Job should show us, a Christ-like mediator who obeys a grace-giving creator. And as you read Job, try not to put yourself in the shoes of Job. Job, you're not Job. Job is Jesus. You're the ostrich. I'm the ostrich. We're the friends. We're the ones who get it wrong. We're the ones who cannot brag about our righteousness and integrity. 
So when you're suffering and tempted to think and operate in the system, you must remember where it falls short of the truth of God, which we all know from this text that God cares about, and he's angry with those who do do not speak the truth about him. So first, realize that in the system, like I said, grace is missing. God does not always punish wrongdoing. He doesn't. How else could we be forgiven? It isn't us who suffer for our sins. It's Jesus. We sin on a daily, if not hourly basis, and I don't see any of us in the kind of suffering that Job endured. And I don't think God is sitting up there bragging about us to Satan. He's bragging about his son. We are normal sinners that have been forgiven. The system has no room for grace, and so we must abandon it. Also, it's important to note that God does not always reward right doing either. That's not why we do what we do in Cat Lake, to have some reward. If there's any reward, it's in heaven, like we see. But look at any godly character in the Bible. They suffer. They are doing right, and they suffer. Do not think that because you do good, you will have a prosperous life. God's will might be for you to suffer. And next, the next thing that's missing from the system is spiritual warfare. Don't always blame the devil for the things that go wrong in your life, but look how it led Job down the wrong path by ignoring it. We must realize that Satan is an accuser and he wants us to operate in the system. He wants us to curse God. Satan's first two attack on Job's character fail miserably, but his best attack came through the friends that sprinkled in truth with their error. Just like Satan did to Jesus in the wilderness. God wants us to see in this book that there is an unseen reality that we know very little about, and it does have an effect on us. Yet don't be overcome with fear of Satan or the spiritual world because the darkness is subjected to the light. God's sovereign rule is over all. Both good and bad can and do come from God. Spiritual warfare is not just Satan, it's God. God willing things that we do not know why or why that we cannot see. And lastly, realize that what's missing from the system is perfect integrity did not mean perfect theology or perfect faith. If we had perfect faith and perfect theology, the system might work because we could properly apply it. Job thought he was right because of his perfect integrity, which God himself said he had. However, perfect integrity did not translate to knowing all that there is to know about God or having a perfect faith in him. Job needed to see all that he doesn't know about God. We as a people neither have perfect integrity, theology, or faith. Job was one of a kind, just like Jesus. And saying the words, in my experience, those could be the three most dangerous words you ever say if it's not in line with God's word. Don't be like Job's friends. We need the word of God to shape our worldview and overcome the system, not our experience. So as we close, let the truth of the cross comfort you. First of all, all of our questions are answered in Christ. All of them. Job had questions. The friends had questions. And God gave his answer to Job with creation, showing the depths of his knowledge and wisdom. Now God gives his answer to us in Christ, showing the depths of his knowledge, wisdom, and love through a perfect Redeemer who is God himself. And that's the Redeemer who makes the prayer and offering on our behalf. We could learn all that we need to know about Jesus in the word of God. The canon is complete. That is what God wants us to know. 
And God is going to allow suffering in our lives to bring about the hidden sin that helps us depend on Jesus even more and go to his word even more. Next, all of God's questions in this chapter, these chapters, Jesus can answer. All those 53 questions that made Job be silent, could not answer. Christ stands there and says, yes, I was there. I did that. Jesus speaks where Job was silent. Jesus does for us what Job could only do for his friends, not the whole world. Jesus is the, is the creator. And that's the creator we're brought along with, we are co-heirs with. And lastly, remember that Jesus has removed us from the system by his own blood. We as a people will keep going back to the system. But in Christ, he's removed us from that system. He's made us new creations. And we must repent like Job. We cannot skip that part of the story. Job had to repent. We must repent like Job and believe in the one who has done things too wonderful for us to know. Things that we've only heard of, but now, like Job says, I've seen with my own eyes. In Christ, we see those things. And that is what causes us to repent. God shook the life of a godly and blameless man, and some sin came out. God stripped Jesus of his honor, his health, his family, his friends, and even his own father. No sin came out. Only perfection could be found. And that is why we could stand before our creator on that awesome day. That and that alone could comfort us through our suffering and our questioning. Let me close in prayer. Father, I I pray and I hope that it was the word of God, the beautiful poetry of truly this field trip through creation that silenced our questions and only you know the questions being asked in hearts right now, the suffering in each person's life right now. Suffering that might be just beyond what I could imagine, but you know it. And in it, you are still good. And we know that by looking at creation and seeing good things, things too wonderful for us to know, things that we can't comprehend how you even do. And it does make our suffering feel smaller. And when we look at Jesus' suffering, our suffering definitely gets smaller because he is the one who could have survived in the system. But the only one who did good volunteered, chose to be the one who suffered and bled and died and rose again so that you could remove us from the system and put us into grace So I pray, Lord, that we would depend on grace, not our goodness. That when we do bad things, we would not fear what's going to happen, but say, God, thank you that you've already forgiven that. And Lord, that we would not comfort others with the empty comfort of the system, but that we would be there, people of the word. Who, like Job's friends, listened for seven days, just sat there in, in silence, Let us learn from this book the things that we need to know, the truth that only your word could reveal, and go out into the world and make disciples. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you for joining us. For more information about our church, please visit our church's website at kishbible.org. That's K-I-S-H-Bible dot O-R-G.